Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a sunny day in a rather deserted city of Westminster, it must be said, as once again, we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on the air today by Janie Thompson. Janie is the director at Thornham Delhi Limited in Thornham, Norfolk. Janie, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Hello. Hello. Good to be here. It's an absolute pleasure having you. Now, Janie, um, the purpose of this podcast is to gather a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. So what I'd like to understand first and foremost is what that word leader actually means to you. Um, Well, I employ between 35 and 40 staff and I am the leader in many respects. Uh, Leadership means to me Uh, setting an example, never asking someone to do something that I wouldn't ordinarily do myself. Um, It just means to guide people through the everyday workings of the Delhi and therefore um, any interruptions in the Delhi, any advice that my managers need and basically, just like I say, leading by example, setting an example, um, showing my worth, proving that I am absolutely able to be a leader and hoping that I've got the respect of all my staff. So there's a great deal of humility there, a very kind of hands-on leadership style that you uh, have. Um, has Definitely. That, has that leadership been put to the test by the current situation? Because a lot of businesses, of course, during this time have suffered severe disruptions as a result of COVID-19. Um, most definitely. I'll never forget the moment on the Friday evening that I was cashing up um, the business. So it was, re- it was our end of day on the Friday as we'd got Mothering Sunday on the Saturday. And Boris announced that all cafes, uh, restaurants would close that evening, which meant uh, our, our fridges were fully stocked for the weekend, albeit they would have been takeaways, but it certainly would have been a busy, sunny weekend. Mm. And it, I was just racked with anxiety. What am I going to do? I think I shed a tear. And that was my immediate response. But then as leader of this company, I had to get us through that and and make a plan, make a modus operandi for how we were going to go forward. And it changed dramatically from the Friday night. We had a plan on Saturday. Sunday was when everybody went and the world and his wife went out and it became impossible to follow that plan. And so then we had to make another plan. And as it was changing in the government's mind, so we had to respond to those changes. And I was the one who had to implement the changes. It's difficult to essentially be proactive when there's so much uncertainty, isn't it? And government guideline circumstances are changing by the day. And business has really had to be able to react during this time, hasn't it? And make quick, measured decisions based upon changing circumstances. And that, as a leader, is also quite challenging. Yeah, I think in different industries, it it relates differently. But I think for a food industry where your stock is, you know, has a very short um, life, um, even, you know, I think pubs and things are selling or giving away their beer. You know, we had to make a plan. With, we, we decided we were going to stay open. Um, we're, we're in a remote village along the North Norfolk coast. We've got a lot of elderly locals. So we had, we made a plan that we would stay open short hours in the morning, get more essentials in, our stock changed, 
you know, it was that sort of thing. And I had um, a few people, some of my managers that were working with me, and we we were daily, um, you know, making a different plan. We'd go home in the evening, we'd respond to the five o'clock bulletin and say, right, this is what we'll do tomorrow. But it all was, as leader, it all had to come through through me, which was quite onerous. It was, um, it, it's a, it was a big deal. And, and it, you had to be seen to be keeping your head. And everybody around me, I've got two or three key people and they've suffered um, anxiety and stress because their future is unknown. So, mm, And reassuring them um, is also an important part of being um, a leader, isn't it? And it's, it's a huge amount of pressure and um, it isn't always something that people realise when they embark um, on their own um, sort of leadership journeys in a way. Um, you say, of course, that um, a lot of people um, look to you as the leader for certain answers, but we're very self-aware at this point in time, aren't we? There's a lot of reflection and we do know that we don't have all of the answers. As human beings, we are ultimately fallible. We do have limitations. So when people are looking to you to provide the answers and you don't necessarily have them, it can really sort of feel like it's a bit of a lonely place, can't it? And you've experienced that yourself. Um, Yeah, most definitely. I think on the Sunday um, after we were told we'd closed down, I think I personally had a bit of a meltdown and I did um, sadly let that filter through at the end of the day. Um, And all my staff had had a pretty awful day where, you know, we were inundated with customers. But then I just had to take hold of it again on the Sunday night. I gave ultimatums to the staff. A lot of them wanted, well, they all decided they wanted to go on to furlough. And so I was then governed by what my staff said and and to how I could run my business. Um, but we did. I did make a plan with with a few of the staff, and we we managed to go forward. And from that point on, I've had to be optimistic, um, change everything according to the news bulletin. You know, I'm sitting here today, and we might be able to open takeaway um, outside areas on Monday. So today is all about right. We need to get this in place, that in place. And as a leader, you have to put all that into action. And even before. COVID, you know, the other side of my desk was quite often a counselling couch. And when you work with people so many hours a day, you become their mentor mm. and you're the, come the person that they go to when they have a personal problem, which obviously, you know, reflects on their work and everything. So you have to get involved with these people and they look to you for an answer of some sort. They, they want you to say something to make them feel better so they know how to go forward. And that is a great responsibility. And it's also, it, it's something that you can't le- uh, learn at university. It's something that you have to, I think, learn with age experience and also be very um, forthright yourself. You can't be a weak person. Mm, absolutely right. And you talk about the importance of sort of mentors there um, as well. Are there any examples of people who've maybe had an influence on you, who've maybe mentored you, who have you perhaps worked for over the years, Janie? Um, yeah, I have a, a great person. I've always, I've always worked in the face-to-face customer industry, uh, catering, which has been quite full-on and very stressful, and you have to sort of run a million miles an hour every day. 
And then I worked with a guy called Reg Simmons, who uh, he ran a metal trading company from a house next to the host arms in Vernon Market. And it was completely office space. We were working with America and Japan. And he taught me a much slower pace of life. And I learned a lot from him um, that, you know, leadership doesn't necessarily have to be in this rat race. It can be much calmer and a much different type of leadership, which is, you know, the way I work now. I'm based in an office above my, my deli. So I'm not necessarily downstairs unless I'm really needed. And, um, you know, it's, it, he taught me how to, to be a leader in that respect um, and, and go after, you know, you're not just leading your team. You're, you're talking about business deals. You're talking about, you, you know, dealing with the bank and actually setting up behind the scenes so that all the staff you have have a have a place to work, the health and safety is correct and that sort of thing. And Reg taught me a slow a slower pace of life, more de- dealing on a verbal uh, basis with companies, that type of thing. So yeah, he did have a, a great influence on my life. Certainly seems a sterling example. And um, also you mentioned there, Janie, that experience is one of the greatest teachers. And we often hear it said as well that in times of adversity and difficulty like this, it does bring out the best in people. Do you think that the experience of times like this where people have to go out of their comfort zones and really push the boundaries, do you think those are important in people's developments and that people can become good leaders through having experiences like that? I think as a, as a leader, and and I'm sure many people will recognise what I'm about to say, is you have your staff and um, you see their abilities, but it's at times like this that this is tested. And I have one person here who has thought outside of the box so much and just come up with ideas, text me daily, we should be doing this, we should be doing that. And it's great. It's absolutely fantastic and you can see that when that person has been put to the test they have come up trumps others have just faded and melted away and you know that those people will come in they'll in you know hopefully when this is over they'll come in they'll earn their money and they'll go home but they won't give anything back to the company as such but this has really proved to me those people that can like i say think outside the box um you know, change their attitude towards the business. They realize how the business has to change towards what's going on in life. And they're coming up with ideas. And it's not just during their working hours. It's it's the, the WhatsApp group. It's sending me pictures, seeing what other people do. And, and it's being creative. And that we have to evolve with what's going on. And, to, and some people don't like change. But a couple of my staff, I've been so impressed with them and just, you know, astounded by the things that they're coming up with. And it's been a great help to me as a leader because it's like going to war and these people are right beside me. And that is just great to know. It's fantastic that they've really stepped up to the plate during this time and let's hope that they continue to do so in future. And if we think about the future for a moment, Janie, before we do wrap things up on the programme today, um, do give me an idea of what you imagine the next 12 months will hold for yourself and for Thornham Delhi, and also what you hope to achieve in that time as well. But not just in coming through the current pandemic situation, but also your ambitions for beyond that as well. I think, um, obviously, we've slowed down. I think 
there's a part of me that has really enjoyed lockdown and taught me that you can run the business and still get a measure of um, home life. Um, I've spent more time with my children, which is great. And I'm sure a lot of people will concur with that. As regards to the future of Thornham Delhi, uh, I think it's given us, we've always been so busy, but it's given us time to stop and look at some of our systems, which we are now honing and things that we haven't had time to do before. So I think going forward, we're going to be running much more efficiently. Um, I think it's going we, after COVID. I don't think COVID's going away. I think after lockdown, I can say I think we'll gradually progress back into what we had before. But I think people are going to be much more conscious of space awareness, cleanliness, that type of thing, and we have to respond to that. So the future for us is getting all that in place before the end of lockdown. I think hopefully by next summer, um, we will be somewhere back to where we were with regards to people visiting us. I know there's a certain amount that will never come back. They'll never eat in restaurants again, which is really, really sad. But, um, you know, the future for us is is just more, being more efficient. Um, we're much more on top of things than we were before because we were just too busy. And it's it's given us time to take a breath, to review everything. So going forward, we've made different plans and we have just had to adapt and evolve with the whole COVID situation, which isn't going to go away anytime soon. Absolutely. It is going to be um, here in the, the long run. And um, eventually, as we do start to emerge from the pandemic and start to see things change, it might be really beneficial for the listeners, I think at least, uh, Janie, to perhaps uh, catch up and have you back on the programme and just see as to how the business is doing and how things have maybe altered. Um, but for now, we are just out of time on today's programme, but it has been um, a real insightful and also really enjoyable experience having you on the air with us. And thank you ever so much for taking the time to come on and speak with me today. Well, thank you so much. It's been a real privilege. Thank you for asking me. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on, Janie. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Take care. Stay safe. Take care, Janie, and do stay safe. And if the listeners, of course, tuning into this and are, of course, paying attention, do stay home and do stay safe. It really does make a difference in saving lives. Um, I was speaking then to Janie Thompson, director at Thornham Deli in Thornham, Norfolk. Um, Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. Sir Andrew is currently the director of cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. And as a player, he was one of only three England captains to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia. He is also the England captain with the second highest amount of test victories in history. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Andrew and that's coming up next. Hello and welcome I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. 
Uh, but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... Vaughan got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But 
I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey, he looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. (laughs) And I went, well, join the club. You know, I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was number one, drawing that game at the Oval to make sure we 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 won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London, and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing I think that's such a key point now because there's there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well as a celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later... Uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you were looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here. 
here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, w- that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. Absolutely. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. Let's. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr- to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th- there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. Uh, and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Yes. Okay. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many, um, because they they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they. Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. Mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was 
sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... In fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think... I was comfortable leading. I was. I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look who have now become... Avid cricket fans. I know of some. It, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I. Yeah. Actually, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands: husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you. To explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer, and for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died, 
in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These Mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, Five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's the, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be. Yeah. So the, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about. Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f- for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing red. Uh, wearing red. So it w- what, what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, no, it, absolutely. You know, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, so I should 
and I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but... In two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to... I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.